Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on this show. Today, we're going to change the way that you think about raising emotionally fit and mentally strong kids. My first guest is Dr. Stuart Shanker. He is a distinguished research professor emeritus of philosophy and psychology and the founder and CEO of the Merit Center Limited. He's also the author of a few books. The first one that we're going to talk about today is Self-Reg, How to Help Your Child and You Break the Stress Cycle and Successfully Engage with Life. Welcome, Dr. Shanker. Thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure, Lisa. Oh, well, this is a great topic, one that I speak of every day when I'm out and about in the world. And we were talking before starting the show. You were telling me that you live on an island in Ontario, Canada, and we are in the beginning of winter. And you were telling me how cold it is and uh, a bit about your former job. And I would love to have you give our audience, tell them the story of your job and your attire. Well, I worked in the Northwest Territories and particularly in Yellowknife. And in January, the temperature hovers around minus 42. So it's very cold. But the interesting thing about the people that I was working with, you know, you hear all the time that they have sort of special gene that enables them to metabolize fat basically in cold weather. But in fact, they have all kinds of social practices that have been passed down from one generation to the next about how to deal effectively with the cold. And they literally dressed me. They told me what kind of coat to get, what kind of head covering, what kind of boots, and then little things like how to move in the cold. And so for a scientist like me, those are really ways of self-regulation. And they've been passed down for God knows how long. And The truth is that once you learn these practices, it's a gorgeous place to be. It's a wonderful experience working up in Yellowknife. And what's interesting is I jokingly said to you, what is your office attire? Do you wear a Tundra jumpsuit? And you said, well, yes, I do. And heated boots. (laughs) (laughs) Quite literally, you do. You wear a Tundra jumpsuit. You know, I hope it was a stylish one. Let's talk about, (laughs) just jump right into self-regulation, because I think And apparently a lot of people also agree that if we learn to self-regulate at an early age and self-soothe, that we tend to just do better in life. Well, I was trained in psychophysiology of self-regulation. I went to the University of Oxford, where this has been studied now for almost 100 years. And what they were really interested in was how we deal with stress. And there are all different kinds of stresses. 
And we may deal with stress in a, in a good way, in a beneficial way, or in a bad way, a maladaptive way. The fact is that we do self-regulate in all kinds of ways that aren't very good. To give you an example, if, if I'm really stressed, maybe I'll self-regulate by eating a quart of very rich ice cream. But we think of that as not a very good way to self-regulate because it has negative downstream consequences for my health. And so what we want to do is learn better ways of dealing with stress. And what we find in our work with children, and we started off working particularly with children on the spectrum, is they have all kinds of maladaptive ways of dealing with stress. And so what we want to do is shift them into ways of dealing with stress that promote growth. And I'll just refer to your opening point. We're very interested in emotional growth. So we want ways of self-regulating that promote and don't prevent emotional growth. That's what we're all about. And when we talk about self-regulation and stress behavior and misbehavior, I'd love for you to really decipher the two because they're different. It's a hugely important point. When we talk about misbehavior, what we mean is that the child or teenager is choosing what they're doing, that they could have made a different choice, that they ignore the consequences, or maybe they're trying to see what they can get away with. So it's a very intentional, it's a very conscious kind of behavior. But with stress behavior, what we're interested in are things where the child is not choosing, uh, where the child hasn't isn't really aware of what they're doing or why they're doing it or what the consequences are. So to give you an example, if a baby has a a meltdown or a tantrum, that's a classic example of a stress behavior. It's caused by processes uh, that are deep inside the brain. The very interesting thing about looking at this is that those kinds of stress behaviors, those kinds of meltdowns can happen at any age. (laughs) I was thinking that. (laughs) Well, I mean, just this morning I was dealing with, uh, we were dealing with a case where it was a 13-year-old who, you know, in very real terms was operating at the level of around a one-year-old. I was just going to just add that there are many adults around there, myself included, that I do indulge in the occasional meltdown. I hope you do too. No, I think that's exactly right. Now, the reason why this is so important is because how we respond to uh, misbehavior is very different than how we respond to stress behavior. So with misbehavior, we may punish or we may try to teach. But with stress behavior, I want to pick up on a word that you used right at the start, and that is we want to really go into soothing. We want to go into, you know, turning off these very deep brain alarms that are sounding. And of course, the same thing happens with a teenager or, as you just said, with an adult. Unfortunately, we think that because it's a teenager or because it's an adult, uh, we can explain, we can punish, we can yell, and none of those behaviors work. In fact, they make it worse. So what we learn to do in self-reg is recognize the signs of a stress behavior, and there's all kinds of very subtle signs as well as obvious ones. And then we learn techniques for restoring that balance that we need. So then we can start to think, you know, constructively about why did this happen? How can we prevent it? You know, where do we move from here? 
The experiments that were done many years ago, the marshmallow experiments, I think about yep. those. And I, w- I know that you write about them in the book, Self-Reg, How to Help Your Child and You Break the Stress Cycle and Successfully Engage in Life. I'd love for you to kind of recap those experiments and what you've learned as a result, the research community has learned as a result, and what what kind of new research has unfolded since. That's a fabulous question. It's a sort of a two-parter. The original uh, marshmallow task was done in the late 60s by Walter Mischel. And at the time, it was seen as an experiment about self-control. And even if they used the word self-regulation, they were, they were really thinking of self-control. The idea here was that you want to see if a child can prevent themselves from grabbing at a temptation. But some very interesting discoveries were made about the marshmallow task. And The first one was that, you know, we typically see a breakdown where about one third of young children can delay gratification, it's called. They can pass the test and two thirds can't. But what they then found was that if you take the one third that delayed gratification and stress them out, you can stress them for about a half an hour with something as basic as doing some arithmetic and then repeat the test, what you find is about half of them now fail. Now, if we take the other group, the group that failed the first time around, and in their half hour, what we do is we rest them up. So maybe what we'll do is we'll do some breathing exercises, turn off the lights, play some soft music, and then redo the test. And now more than half of them can pass the test. That got us thinking that really what's going on in the marshmallow task is it's a stress test. And in fact, psychology is filled with stress tests. Pretty much every single famous paradigm that we call them that we use is a stress test. So I was lecturing on this once with a very famous astronaut in Canada. And at the end of when I explained all this, he said, you know, that's exactly what we do with astronauts. We put them in this uh, isolation chamber and see how they cope with the stress of isolation. And that's what we're doing with the marshmallow task. It's actually very carefully designed to stress a child. So then the next step we wanted to know is, well, what is, if it's not about self-control, what is it about? Well, it's about how a child deals with stress. The child finds the marshmallow very stressful. And in fact, what a lot of them do is they self-regulate by eating the marshmallow. And the reason I say that is the marshmallow is driving me nuts. So what better way to get rid of the stress than to get rid of it? Get rid of it. (laughs) Get rid of it. So it is, in fact, like in psychology, we see this, you know, Marty uh, Seligman, who was the very first to really see the importance of this point with, with his original theory of learned helplessness, that what happens is we've got this fabulous experiment. It's fabulous because it keeps getting repeated, but we didn't really understand what it was telling us. And what it was telling us is a story about how well a kid deals with stress. And really, it tells us how much stress they're under. The more stress a child's under, the more stressful they find that test. So it's a very interesting example of how the genuine importance of this experiment or in work we've done since on IQ tests, which are also stress tests, is really very different from what we originally thought. This is fascinating to me because it it also speaks to the parenting style and how that impacts the kid's ability to deal with stress or lack thereof. Yes, 
Yes, exactly right. And that's why this so, whole parenting thing is not so much, well, it is a lot about what the parents do, but, and how that affects the child. And if you don't have a good model in, in your own parenting, in the parents' parenting, you pass that on to your kid. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so what we find literally, Lisa, in all the work we do when we work with parents is we have to work on their own self-regulation before we can start to work with how well they can help their child learn how to self-regulate in more beneficial ways. That's always the case. And the promising part, because the benefit is, uh, it's, it's holistic. I'll tell you something that's fascinating. So we do an awful lot of work up here. Probably the majority of our work is now with educators. And when we started off doing this, uh, we were teaching them how to recognize stress behavior in students and what to do about it how to reduce stress. And we run institutes up here all the time. And at our institutes, they started to say, well, can we start off before we get to the kids? Can we do something for my own stress? So (laughs) every single institute we, we run now starts off the very first day is all about their stress, their self-regulation. And, you know, we're seeing a sort of explosion of self-reg up here amongst schools across the country. And it's because Once they experience the benefits, then they are not only able, but now they really want to have children experience the same. And it's the same with mom and dad, right? Yeah. And it's easier to communicate it because you're leading by the example. Yeah. And I'll tell you a very, there's a very deep sort of neuroscientific factor at play here. Let's Um, jump, let's jump out to the break and then we'll come back. Speaking of self-regulation, we'll do a little (laughs) of that ourselves. We'll go to the break and then we'll come back and we'll we'll talk more about it. Okay. I'm going to go do some deep breathing. Yeah. Do some deep breathing over there. I'll do some too. To learn more about the work of Dr. Stuart Shanker and his book, uh, Self-Reg, How to Help Your Child and You Break the Stress Cycle and Successfully Engage with Life, please visit the website self-reg.ca on Twitter. Uh, you can find Stuart at self-reg on Facebook, self-reg, that's without the hyphen, and on Instagram, self-reg. And actually, I believe that Twitter handle was self-reg. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. Before we take that break, I want to mention a way I keep my own brain happy. Like so many of you, I try to learn something new every day, and that's why I'm a big fan of Blinkist a new time-efficient app that serves my curious mind and a hunger for lifelong learning. In this fast-paced world, it's a challenge to juggle life's responsibilities and personal growth. This is where Blinkist comes in to help me nurture my well-being with consciously crafted brain food. Blinkist is the only app that distills the best takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down to short and sweet readable and audible summaries of 15 minutes or less. Blinkist is made for busy folks like you and me who like to read and want to stay informed but just don't have enough hours in the day to do it all. Blinkist makes it easy to finish four books in a day while you're on the go. More than 8 million people are using the massive and growing Blinkist library of self-help, business, health, history books, and more. I like Blinkist because in 15 minutes or less, I can expand my intelligence on any subject and boost my happiness through greater knowledge. I use Blinkist when I'm driving in the car. It helps make my travel time more relaxed and enjoyable. I've recently listened to Start With The Why by Simon Sinek and How to Stop Worrying and Start Living by Dale Carnegie, and I highly recommend them both to you. 
And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash happiness and start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash happiness. Remember, that's Blinkist.com slash happiness. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about raising emotionally fit and mentally strong kids, what it takes as a parent, a mentor, a teacher to help our children live more fulfilled, happier and less stressful lives. My guest today is Dr. Stuart Shanker. So Stuart, prior to the break, we started talking about why modeling good stress management is imperative for having children or teaching children and working with children who are able to do so. You know, you made a point just before our break that is kind of fundamental, the foundation of what we do with parents and teachers. And that is that it's essential that you yourself feel calm in order to be able to do the kind of modeling that you're talking about. Okay, so why? Well, there's this phenomenon that neuroscientists study called limbic resonance. And what that means is that it's not enough to, say, memorize a script or to say all the right things. You actually have to be calm. You have to feel that sort of inner peace. If you don't, if you are tense or anxious or agitated or even angry, those emotions leak out. In psychology, when we talk about leakage, what we mean is that we have these nonverbal messages that we give off. So even if I'm saying all the right things, I've got all the right words, but if I'm angry or agitated, it comes through in my tone of voice, in my eyes, in my behavior, my posture. And the problem for us when we're working with children that are, uh, you know, uh, we call it being in a red brain state. They're, they're in this very heightened stress state. That's all they hear. They don't hear the words. They hear the messages that are leaking out. So over and over what we do, and you know, I have a very nice example of this in the book where we were working with this one mom, and what we had to do was we had to you know, help her find that inner sense of calmness. And then when she, you know, she'd been having uh, a long struggle with her teenage daughter, when she was able to find her own calmness, the child instantly picked up on that. And from there, they were able to, you know, have these sorts of uh, genuine conversations that mom was so anxious to have. Yeah. And all we want for our kids or for grandparents out there, for our grandchildren, is that they, they live good, happy lives. But without yes. the, the, the skill set to do the most fundamental part of regulating that hot brain of ours. And it's, we all have it, the ability to sort yes. of go red, right? Doesn't, that doesn't change. You know, one of the things we are concerned about in our, in our own research is we mentioned right at the start of the show that uh, self-regulation is about 
how we deal with stress. And the reality is ours is an extremely stressed society. Uh, and in some ways, it's one of the most stressed societies we've ever seen. And so it becomes, you know, if, if we want a child to uh, enjoy that happy life that you just described, then it's essential that we give them the tools to recognize when they're becoming overstressed, to figure out what the stressors are that are you know, usually hidden, to have strategies for reducing the stress, and then finally to figure out you know, patterns that will um, maintain that sort of balance that we need, not just emotional balance, but even uh, a neurobiological balance. And that's all the work we do. It's, those are the five steps, actually. Well, before we talk about these five steps in more depth, I want to just go back to something that you said here about, you know, ha- uh, giving children the skill set. But when we live in a society in the Western world where most everything out there in the world is predicated upon instant gratification, that yes. it is very challenging, you know, when we are getting our information, you know, with the tap of a finger to learn how to sit and wait for a marshmallow. No pun intended, right? So we, we've done an awful lot of work on what you just described. And uh, one of the things that's happened in our culture is that pretty much every industry you can think of has figured out how to hijack it. We call it dopamine hijacking, how to hijack a kid's dopamine. And unfortunately, this is a stress. So what we see is, say, video games or even smartphones that are designed to hijack uh, dopamine, food that's been designed, like, literally to hook a kid. And there's, there are various books out there which are instruction manuals about how to hook a kid. But this is a problem because what's happening is children are, and teens are resorting to these games, we'll say, in order to self-regulate, if you ask a kid, they say that they do it because, you know, for hours and hours on end, because it makes them feel calm. But in fact, it's not calmness. What it is, is it's a, a very different state and it leaves them depleted. It leaves them uh, even more vulnerable to anxiety or, or agitation. Uh, we have a very simple uh, rule that we give all our parents, uh, you know, parents, uh, um, tell us over and over that they allow the child to, you know, play these the silly games um, because it. The child says it's calming. So, how was the kid when you turned it off? Was the kid nice and calm? No. Uh, did the kid <laughs> cheerful, um, helpful around the house? Uh, if not, if you're like every other parent, then you know that we can start to figure out why our children are so overstressed today. Yeah. So much. I mean, there's so much to talk about and we can't c- talk about it all in, in this interview. So you'll maybe come back and hang out with me and talk more because I yeah, do. Yeah, there, there's such a correlation between what you're describing and almost a precursor to addictions and why we yep. see them on the rise. I agree. I agree. But let's go back to the model, the five domain model for self-reg. Talk a little bit about these five different points, because I think they're really important. So. What we look at, so remember that we're talking about how your, how your child or teen deals with stress. And what we found is that there are really five domains of stress that we have to, that we have to look at. And the five domains are physical stress. And that could be things like, you know, too much noise, too much visual distraction. 
We look at emotional stress, and that's all the work you do. Uh, we look at cognitive stress, and parents ask us all the time, what's a cognitive stress? Well, math. Math is a cognitive stress. We can explain why, but that's every parent who has a child that is struggling with math knows exactly what I mean. Uh, <laughs> then we look at social stress, and, and school is an intensely social experience. And, and then finally, we look at pro-social stress, and that's empathy. Empathy is, in fact, a stress. Someone else's distress can be very stressful for children. Now, why five domains? The reason is the following. What we found over and over is that one stress stands out in your mind. Like you say to yourself, well, my child's stress is being bullied or my child's stress is they can't cope with frustration. But in fact, it's always all five domains. So to give you a very simple example, I find with my own children that when they're underslept, then their ability to deal with social stress or emotional stress is really low. Yeah. When they've had proper sleep, then they have, they're much more resilient. So for us, when we look at something like, uh, when we look at something like, well, say resilience, we look at all five domains plus what you mentioned in the first set, and that is the role of the interbrain. And it's not just one interbrain. It's mom and dad to start with, but then it's teachers and coaches. There are many interbrains. So we always look at the five domains and how whether the adults that the child's engaging with are helping them deal with stress or are actually making it worse for the child. Points well taken. And uh, what I really also hear you say is, you know, teaching our children to care for themselves well, you know, by sleeping yes. well, eating well, exactly exercising right. well, having, you know, exactly good connected right. social relationships and rest and playtime. Exactly right. Everything you just said, I would put an exclamation mark. And that's what this is all about, right? Yes. So what we want to do is we want to give them those adaptive, those growth promoting skills. And they have to be the one that gets these skills. That's why it's self-regulation. So the best thing I can give a kid is to teach them how to deal with the stresses in their life. Because remember one thing, Lisa, stress can be good or bad. Stress can make you wake up and you just can't wait to get going. It's what motivates you or stress can be crushing. We want them to see stresses like school as, as really exciting. That's where the growth comes from. And the positive stress is, is youth is stress. positive stress, yeah. Right, it's youth stress. Yeah, exactly and and right. distress is the negative stress where we don't have the coping, exactly, coping ability. Exactly right, yeah. So we stole that from Seligman, right? So, we, so we, we, we talk about positive and negative stress. And our whole point here is we want to take negative stresses and make them positive. And we want to be careful that we don't take positive stresses and turn them negative. But... If something's a negative stress for your child, we can figure out how to change that around. Over and over, we've done it. And at the end of the day, or the bottom line, is that life is a series of stress tests. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, it, and, and exactly right. I mean, I think that's probably a good, good, good spot to end on. The book we've been talking about today is um, Self-Reg, How to Help Your Child and You Break the Stress Cycle and Successfully Engage with Life. My guest and the author has been Dr. Stuart Shanker. To learn more, please visit self-reg.ca. So it's self-reg.ca. On Twitter at self underscore reg. 
on Facebook, Self Reg, and on Instagram, Self underscore Reg. Stuart, thanks for joining me. Come back and hang out. We have so much more to talk about. I'm going to have to write my next book with you, Lisa. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this has been fun. Thanks a lot. Likewise. Here comes the break. We'll be right back with our next guest. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about something that is super important. If you're a parent, a grandparent, a teacher, a mentor, a coach, and that is raising emotionally fit and mentally strong kids. Join the conversation with Maureen Healy as we talk about how to create an atmosphere that is less stressful, more soothing, and more productive for our children. I have the great honor of speaking with Maureen Healy. She has lots of credentials. She has a doctorate in clinical psychology from the Fielding Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, right in our neighborhood over here. She has written a few books on Children, Growing Happy Kids is one of them. And the one that we're talking about today is her newest, The Emotionally Healthy Child helping children calm, center, and make smarter choices. Amen to that. Hi, Maureen. Hi, how are you? I am excellent and happy to have you with us to talk about the emotionally healthy child. What inspired you to write this book? Well, that's a good question. You know, lots of different reasons, really. But from a very practical standpoint, I work with parents and children around the world. And I kept seeing people in my office who, let's say for the children, were very reactive didn't know how emotions work and what they could do with them. So this is information and ideas and strategies that I have and that, you know, that I know that if I put it in one book, sort of a cliff notes of the emotions 101, where to get started, that it would help people. And I also, you know, I've had the luxury of studying with teachers in Asia and Europe and different places. And, you know, busy parents and teachers don't have that luxury. So uh, I figured condensing it and just making a practical guide would be helpful. So as an educator and teaching around the world and studying around the world, you have your own experience as a child with big emotions. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, I'm a sensitive person. I was a sensitive person as a child. I have big emotions and a lot of intensity as a child. And like most kids, we begin more reactive. So we, you know, way back when, when I was growing up, we didn't have these kind of classes in the classroom. So you didn't necessarily know what to do with your emotions. When I was young, I would, you know, just intuitively or instinctually, I would go climb a tree and sit at the top of the tree and calm. So I knew what to do by having some good instincts, but there was no formality to it. So I knew helping kids earlier on really get some ideas helps them. Got it. Um, talk a little bit about techniques that we can teach our children as adults that get to live by example. That's a good one. You know, in the book, The Emotionally Healthy Child, there's lots of strategies and techniques from mindfulness to deep breathing to lots of different things. But one tool that I'll share that is very helpful is the Smart Choices Checklist. 
Because oftentimes when children are behaving in a difficult or challenging or unwanted way, it's really because they don't realize they have other choices. For example, the child that I work with who threw his uh, notebook in the classroom, he was really angry. He certainly had anger relief when he threw the notebook, but the kid that got hit in the head with it did not feel so hot. So, you know, <laughs> we, we want to make help children make smart choices, good for them and good for others. So one of the things I did with him is we said, I said, could you have done that differently? You know, what are the other options? Helping him realize that in that moment of annoyance, irritation, frustration, he can learn to catch himself. And we can talk about that. He can learn to calm. He can ultimately make a different choice. So we said, okay, what else could you do? Could you talk to the teacher? Could you go to the bathroom and splash water on your face? Could you take deep breaths? Could you take your Fiji cube out? You know, having him come up with other solutions helped him make better choices. And I think that's a key piece of the puzzle, whether it's a classroom or at home, is helping children recognize they have choices in those moments. You don't have to just have a knee jerk reaction. Well, you know, in terms of the, the kid who threw the notebook, like where does the kid learn to throw the notebook? You know, I, I mean, we model behavior as parents. Yeah. I mean, of course, if you have good models, that's always more helpful because you can mimic good behavior. But anger is a fast emotion. And, you know, any of us know who've been angry that, you know, if you don't bring your logic online and calm, you're going to make a reaction that's just quick and not thinking more careless versus careful or mindless is mindful. So the kid who threw the notebook wasn't really thinking. He just wanted his anger out. And it didn't come out in what I would say a constructive way. It came out destructive. So we want to help them make more constructive choices. So when we talk about anger and, and utilizing anger constructively, what might have been another scenario for the kid? Right. Well, you know, when, when he has a little more self-awareness, which that's what one of the things we were working on is like, you want to catch your anger when it's frustration or irritation and not when it's epic anger. So if you can catch emotion when it's smaller, you can do something better with it. But, you know, the more you practice like anything in life, the better you are. It's like going to the gym to build a muscle. Emotional health is a skill that you need to learn and practice. So, you know, other times when he got angry in the classroom or frustrated on the playground, he could take a deep breath. He could walk away. He could write in his notebook. He could talk to the teacher. There's always other options. And the one that's, you know, not a smart choice is the one that hurts you or hurts someone else. You want to make a choice that's good for you and good for others. It doesn't mean it's an easy choice. It doesn't mean that it always feels good. It just means that it's the best choice in the moment. So emotional health. This is a great thing to talk about because many of us are challenged in this area. Yes, we're healthy physically. Yes, we're operating well in the world. But do we possess the tools and resources to regulate our emotions and our actions? Not just as kids. I mean, as the parents who are raising these kids. I agree. So what are some exercises that you would offer up to teach kids how to be more emotionally healthy and literate? Yeah. Well, in my book, The Emotionally Healthy Child, I do start out with saying, here are the ideas. These are the things that kids need to know. And then the second part of the book is what we are referring to is, and this is what you need to do. And, you know, if we think about the theme of one of the themes in my book, it's just, it's how do you catch yourself? Step one and stop. Two, how do you calm? And then three, how do you make a smarter choice? So really we're beginning at the first point. How do we stop and catch ourselves? So we all know when we're about to go down the wrong path emotionally, you know, but Helping a child create some self-awareness is helpful. So I'm a big proponent and fan of mindfulness exercises, whether you ask them to go mindfully or pay attention without judgment, you know, 
to go wash your car or set the table. The idea is that mind, mindlessness is when you're doing something really quickly. So you want to help children begin to slow down and make more deliberate choices. So I'm a fan of whether it's laying down every night before you go to bed and putting your hand on your heart and taking some deep breaths and connecting with your heart and slowing down. And then you're programming that activity, that hand on your heart. You're remembering viscerally in your body. This is how calm feels. This is how relaxation feels. So the child who's triggered at school, whether he's anxious about a test, can put his hand on his heart and feel calmer. Or when he's angry and he's about to throw the notebook, he can put his hand on, on his heart and say, oh, take a deep breath and say, okay, I can do something different. You know, it's giving kids the tools they need in their moment, because obviously we're not with them at school, that they can use when they're feeling these big emotions. What I love about your work and what you are doing is to help train parents who in turn deliver this information to their kids. You know, so there's no stigma attached to it. It's just mom or dad trying to help out with some coping tools. Yeah. And I, I think a big piece of the puzzle is that we're all learning together, which is sort of what you referred to before. Nobody's perfect. You know, it's emotional health is a skill we learn throughout our lives. It's not a box that we check. So, you know, there'll be moments when I'm perfect or when I'm not perfect. And I can repair that relationship and say, hey, I made a boo-boo. Maybe I shouldn't have yelled or said that. But, you know, we're learning together. I like what you said, though, about repairing the relationship, that there will be little ruptures or snags along the way. And the fact is that we can come back to the people that we love and say, look, I could have handled this a little bit differently. Always, always. And we all have our own triggers. You know, we were raised by different people in a different time that maybe didn't always tell us, you know, how are you feeling inside? Or maybe they spanked us or they did things, you know, we don't want to continue with our children. So we have to like focus on, you know, what what did my parents do that was really great that I want to continue and what do I not want to continue so that I have self-awareness in the process. Which is also not, not demonizing our parents. It's just saying, totally. look, you know, they did it this way. Mm, it's not going to work, work today in that way. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, spanking is still legal in all 50 states. It's just not smart, you know? Yes. Let's repeat that. Spanking is not <laughs> smart <laughs> for, for any of our listeners that may think that the occasional SWAT is okay. It does a lot of damage. A lot of damage. Talk a little bit about the state of our mental health in the United States with regards to children, because there seems to be a lot of anxiety and mood disorders on the rise. Well, I mean, it's an interesting question because there's a lot of things going on. It's a sophisticated answer. We could spend lifetimes talking about it because, you know, there's different there's a different composition of families today. And recently I participated as an expert on the Highlights magazine, just did a survey with children and the elementary children stated their number one fear was school shootings. So obviously children have a lot on their mind and their hearts, whether it's school shootings, whether it's cyberbullying or regular bullying or another fear. So helping kids learn how to stay in the present moment and learning how to come back to center and make smart choices is really an essential piece of not only helping them become healthier and happier, but giving them the resilience and moving them in the right trajectory. So things are complicated. I mean, there is not only biological reasons, but there's a lot of things that smart kids, intelligent, capable kids see in the world that are really not healthy. Well, what you said is very disturbing that children worry about their physical safety at school. More than their parents dying. The number one fear is school shootings. Yes. That's it's astounding and it's saddening and frightening and 
It's horrible. And it's an opportunity for all of us intelligent adults to say, hey, we got to solve this. This is not okay. It's not okay. It's not okay that 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 fear, the fear exists in our world with the resources that we have today. And it's not okay for our children to suffer Mm -hmm. in this way. Right. I agree. Wow. So when you think of the optimally emotionally healthy child, what do you say that person looks like? Well, I mean, I think that it's just like we said, I said earlier, it's a skill to build. So it's not like you pop out of the womb and you're like, oh, my God, I got it together. I mean, it's really something to learn. And I mean, in, a, in an ideal world that sort of doesn't necessarily exist on Earth, but say you were in the ideal family, you'd have like healthy role models, right? You'd have a really supportive community. You'd go to a school that you actually enjoy, you know, and that you were do extracurricular activities that where you felt encouraged and supported and seen and celebrated. I mean, the point is that you want a child to feel all of their emotions and you want to express them constructively. So you don't want to put them in a bubble and you don't want them to save them from falling down. I mean, the goal is you fall down, but you have to teach them how to get back up again. So the emotionally healthy child doesn't always necessarily have an easy path. They just learn that when there's bumps, they're bigger than the bumps and they can get fall down. They can get back up again. They can fail a spelling quiz. That's okay. They can do it differently. They can try harder. It's about using our everyday experiences to move in a direction that's healthier. Talk a little bit about helping our emotional, meaning the right brain children, bring their reason and logic to left brain, you know, in the sense of bringing it into the decision making equation. Sure. I mean, emotional chills. I mean, all of us start in the right brain because when we're babies and we've got diapers on, we cry when we want food or we need something that's normal, that's healthy. But as we mature, we learn how to bring logic onto the, into the equation. And that's usually age four and up in, in general. And, you know, it's at that point where you can certainly formally teach children, okay, we need to take a deep breath. We need to calm. <laughs> you know, here's your peace corner. Go over here if you're feeling a big emotion. You know, we get to help them because if we think about smart choices, they're made with the right and the left brain. You know, you know, when there's very few decisions that are made in anger that are that are really great decisions. So you want to come to your center and calm and then make a smart choice, because if you think about the child who pushes a kid on the playground, you know, reactively. You know, he's just feeling anger or frustration and pushes. He's not bringing his left brain online. It's his logic like, hey, you know, maybe not a good idea. Maybe I could wind up in the principal's office. I could get detention. You know, you you want them to use both sides of their brain to make smart choices. That's with their emotions and ultimately the bigger picture, anything in life. Well, ideally, we're, we're all synthesizers, right, with our brain, but we're not always there, even as we move into adulthood, where we're using both sides synergistically. Yeah. And I think that like we, we, it's a skill to learn there. Are, you know, some people tend toward the right, some tend toward the left. If we think of Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory, he's on the left side, right? You know, he needs to learn emotional intelligence. And then maybe a lot of artists, not all, but some are on the right side and they need to learn the checkbook, how to handle the checkbook. So it's bringing both together that kind of makes life work. And the sooner we do that, the better for kids. Yes, the sooner for better for kids and for for all of us. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Maureen Healy about her new book, The Emotionally Healthy Child, Helping Children Calm, Center, and Make Smarter Choices. To learn more, please visit growinghappykids.com, on Twitter at MD Healy, and that's H-E-L-Y, on Facebook, Maureen D. Healy, 
Instagram, we've got Maureen Healy. And on YouTube, you've got a channel called Growing Happy. That's pretty cool. Let's take a break. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we are changing the way you think about raising emotionally fit and mentally strong kids. My guest today is Maureen Healy, PhD, and she has definitely got a twist that you need to pay attention about to raise kids that are more calm, centered, and joyful. So Maureen, in in working with children all over the world, you have been able to see them in their happy place. And you talk in your book about the importance of wholeness versus happiness. Yes. Yeah. No, I mentioned that wholeness is more important than happiness. I mean, you know, happiness is pretty darn important. I'm not going to ignore that. But the idea is that if we're talking about emotional health, you want a child, you want to raise a child to be able to feel all of their feelings, to be able to embrace discomfort. You know, some challenging emotions are uncomfortable. So that's a sort of a separate topic. How do do they embrace discomfort and learn how to overcome challenging emotions? But the idea of wholeness is that you want them to feel all their feelings and be able to express them constructively. So that means if your son comes in the door from school and you say, how was your day? And he says, oh, it was fine. You know, he's not ignoring the fact that he was teased on the playground. He feels really sad. He's bummed out. He's not ignoring or repressing his emotions. A healthy child would come in and say, hey, you know, today was a bummer. I don't really want to talk about it. I'm going to go shoot some hoops maybe, but it wasn't a great day. So he's not ignoring his feelings, repressing them or letting them come out sideways. He's learning how to express, let them come through him, feel them and release them constructively. This is, this is fantastic. And and there is a difference in what you describe of sort of ignoring what's going on and saying, look, I'm just not ready to deal with it right now, but it wasn't good for X, Y, or Z reason. Right. And we have a tendency to do that with our kids. We smile and say, Hey, it was a good day. And it wasn't a good day. We just, we, you know, you want to share with them an age appropriate level that, you know, Hey, we'll get through this together. You know, mom had a flat tire today, but you know what? I learned how to handle it. It wasn't the worst thing in the world. You want to show them that there isn't anything that you can't get through together. And that's really important. Really important. Let's talk a little bit about keeping things from the kids and why in the pursuit of protecting our kids, we may be doing them a little bit of a disservice. 
Well, I mean, obviously you want to do it in age appropriate ways. I may not bring my cousin around and say, Hey, you know, today was a tough day with the mortgage, you know, but I certainly want to show them if I have frustrations and ways that help them. I want them to know that life isn't always unicorns and rainbows. Some days are a little more challenging than others. And that's okay. The point is to feel our feelings and that we actually have the power to either think a new thought or do something differently to move us in a more constructive direction. Or, you know, if it's a really sad day or something was, you just feel it. You let it come in and you let it go and you get to begin again tomorrow. So it's important for kids to realize that, you know, it's up to us. There's no one else who can make you healthier or happier that we each have control over our emotions but that, you know, we can do it together. And life is a practice. When we put these healthy habits into our life, that we get these po- more positive outcomes in, in life. And I agree with something that you said about like, you're not oversharing information about things that would be destabilizing for a child or not age appropriate. But I was really thinking of something that you wrote about in, in the book, The Emotionally Healthy Child, about Let's say there's a loss of the family pet. You know, I, I hear stories, you know, in, in working with young adults where, you know, they will say, well, my dog died and my parents said that the dog ran away or the dog was given to a, another relative that they couldn't mention the D word, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important to talk about those kinds of things, death and loss. Yeah, not only that, I mean, in our Western culture, we have this really big fear of death. So it's a little strange to me. But um, I think that, you know, because if you think about death, I mean, everything is born and dies. There's always we're all ha- we all have an expiration date. Thank God we don't know about it. But <laughs> but, you know, if we look at the seasons, you know, one season starts and one season ends. If we look at the day, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. So it's a natural beginning and ending and help children embrace that that helps them recognize that every moment is special. Our time is precious. And that, you know, for example, I had a family I work with, the father, you know, by accident, he killed the guinea pig. He didn't leave enough water out. So he just bought another guinea pig. But of course, his son walked in and said, where's the birthmark in the guinea pig or the spot? You know, this is not the same guinea pig. <laughs> so, gotcha. I mean, so yeah, children don't miss a trick and they can feel when we're honest with them or when we're hiding something. So like you said, in age appropriate ways, I think it's important for them to learn that, you know, hey, that everything is special, that every moment has the ability to be a good moment if we try and that it's important, especially if there's grandparents, you know, it's, of course, it's easier if people die in sort of a, you know, in, in sort of the normal healthy order. It's harder when we have something out of order, like a peer dies for a child. But when someone like a grandparent dies, you know, that's a great opportunity. It's a teachable moment. And, you know, going back to the uh, emotional fitness component about making our children aware of the preciousness of time through the lens of the relationship with the older relative. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that the reality is that we hope to all get old like this and how special that we can be there for our grandmother or grandfather. You mentioned to me prior to starting our conversation that the Dalai Lama has written a foreword to the book. Yes, I'm very honored. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. That's so exciting. Yeah, I felt like I cashed in some karma points on that, actually. But <laughs> but um, yeah, in 2007, I, I lived in India and I studied with the Dalai Lama and taught with the Tibetan refugee children um, and studied Buddhism. So there's a connection there for sure. But I was just honored that he saw, you know, the book of value. And one of the things he said, he's he hopes that the ideas and tools in the book, 
you know, help future generations and help change the way we educate our children. Because I'm a big believer that emotional health needs to be in the classroom. We can't just rely on households. We have to be able, because if if we're in the classroom, if we don't get the emotions correct, if someone's stressed or angry or frustrated, we can't even get to the academics. So it just makes good sense. In the classroom is good because the family dynamic doesn't always possess it. You know, that's true. And we can't, we can't rely on it. Like you're saying, like, you know, the families are so different these days that, you know, it's just in the United States, we're a melting pot of different cultures where other cultures are different. So here we need to sort of come together to appreciate our diversity and learn how to, you know, express these emotions constructively. Do you have kids? I do not have any children. Oh, th- this is what makes you so buoyant and happy when talking about teaching kids. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, I have many, like I have some stepchildren and I have many other kids that, you know, text me and call me constantly because I have a busy practice. But yeah, I wasn't blessed with children my own. Well, it sounds like you're like a zillion times blessed with the kids that you get to work with. But it's absolutely it's it is interesting, you know, that oftentimes, you know, when we're dealing with our kids on a daily basis, it would become frustrated. You know, our own fuses are are short. We're working. We're tired. So the fact that there this can be supported outwardly, you know, by books like this, by by learning in the classroom, by even having counseling, we can provide our children with something that many of us didn't get when we were growing up. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of, I think every child and family in an ideal situation has their own support team or happiness team, you know, because it takes a lot of people, it takes a lot of resources because there are, there will be bumps in the road. That's just naturally human living. So there will be moments where we're off balance. And sometimes it's easy for the parents to bring a child back to balance and maybe they need a coach or maybe they need a teacher or a cousin. So having a few people in that child's life that really is on their team is important. What's next for you? What's your next project? What a good question. I mean, I've written three books for adults regarding children uh, about confidence, happiness, and emotional health. And I think my next book project will be, I'll be writing directly to children. Oh, cool. Yeah. Is there something that we didn't cover that you would like to add or cover or expand upon? I mean, the only thing is, I would just say that, you know, life is about progress and not perfection. And the skill of emotional health is a skill to learn. So we, you know, of course, it's easier if we had great parents or we've got great genes, but that doesn't need to be the case. And the big question I often get from parents is, is it too late? You know, am I too late? And it's, and I guess what I would say is it's never too late. You know, it's always an opportunity. If we have breath and life, we can, we can begin again. And that's really the joy of emotional health, no matter where we are, whether we have a child who has some diagnosis or some particular challenge, that doesn't preclude emotional health. You know, it's something, it's a skill to build. Mm. This approach is very soothing, I think, for parents, because it makes us think that, you know, we can maybe bend them, but we can't break them. You know, (laughs) that there's the resilience is there and the opportunity to do better also exists. Yeah. And I think the idea, as you, I'm sure, well know, is just that when we feel better, we do better. So we want to feel better and learning how to feel better and the ideas and the tools. And and that's really why I wrote the book, The Emotionally Healthy Child, is to give parents and teachers and professionals a starting point. Sometimes we just need where do we begin? Yeah. 
Well, kudos to you because it is a great book. It's a fun read. And to learn more about the work of Dr. Maureen Healy, you can go to growinghappykids.com on Twitter at MD Healy on Facebook, Maureen D. Healy, Instagram, Maureen Healy, and that YouTube channel where you've got lots of little tips, I think, right? Yes. Growing happy. Thank you for having me. This has been a delight. I feel the same way. This is good stuff. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Stuart Shanker and Maureen Healy, PhD, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.